Hello, welcome to the podcast. Chesbro Baptist Church will be preaching out of Exodus chapter 3 this morning. The title of the message is The I Am. I do want to apologize in advance. We had some audio issues uh, during the service, so I do apologize if it cuts out some, has a couple of pops here and there. But we've thrown away that microphone, and next week we're going to start using a brand new microphone. So please enjoy. All right, if you have your place in Exodus chapter 3, I'm going to ask you to stand one last time, respect and reverence to the Word of God. We're going to read three verses, pray, and sit back down. The Bible says in Exodus chapter 3, in verse number 13, Then Moses said to God, Behold, I am going to the sons of Israel, and will say to them, The God of your fathers has sent me to you. Now they may say to me, What is his name? What shall I say to them? God said to Moses, I am who I am. And he said, Thus you shall say to the sons of Israel, I am has sent me to you. God furthermore said to Moses, Thus you shall say to the sons of Israel, The Lord, the God of your fathers, The God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob has sent me to you. This is my name forever, and this is my memorial name to all generations. The title of the message this morning is The I Am. Let's pray. Dear Gracious Heavenly Father, we come to you today and ask you to reveal yourself to us in a new way, in an old way, Lord, we just ask you to reveal yourself. Lord, I pray as we study the scripture this morning that you would bless it upon our hearts and, Lord, that our spirits would be filled with the power of God. Help us to walk closer and grow closer to your person. Be with us this morning. In Jesus' precious name I pray, amen. You may be seated. Now, I'm pretty sure most of you know this story because I've told it a time or two, but some of you may not be aware of this story, so I'm going to tell it again. That's the pastor's prerogative. You get one new person, you get to retell the story. And so one of the things that that is kind of interesting about my name is where my name came from, and the reason why my name is my name is because my mom was a huge Gone with the Wind fan, okay? She loved Rhett Butler, and she loved Gone with the Wind, and I have watched that movie so many times with my mom, spent hours and hours. It's a long movie. Okay, hours and hours watching this movie, and my mom, her 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 bedroom has just got gone with the wind memorabilia just all over it. She loves this movie, so she wanted to name me Rhett, and so that was the plan. That was the plan the whole time. The whole pregnancy was to name me Rhett after Rhett Butler. Well, they get to the hospital room. My dad has kept his mouth shut this whole time. They get to the hospital room, and my dad speaks up and says, you know, I don't know anybody named Rhett. I don't want you to name him some obscure name that nobody else is going to have or know. And so let's not name him Rhett. But, man, she kept fighting for it. So they compromised. 
and they named me Brett. And I am eternally grateful to my father that I am not Rhett Martin, okay? I'm glad that I am Brett Martin. But what exactly is a name? What is a name supposed to do? A name is supposed to identify me. It's to differentiate me from other people, okay? Well, there's a problem. The problem with this is in the United States of America, there are over 332 million people, and we all cycle through about 5,000 first names. So that means about every one in nine people have the same first name. I mean, think about, think about Tangibahoe Parish. How many Bretts do you think there are in Tangibahoe Parish? There's, there's two in this room right now, okay? There's two Bretts in here right now, okay? So now we got to go a little bit deeper. Now what's the last name? So the last name separates me and this Brett. So I'm Brett Martin, but do you think I'm the only Brett Martin? You can do a quick Facebook search and find hundreds of Brett Martins all over the place. So now we got to go a little deeper. So now when you've got the name, but then you've got to add on the story. My story is what separates this Brett Martin from other Brett Martins. My story is where I was born, where I grew up, what my parents' names are, where I went to school, where I went to college, what my wife's name is, what are my kids' names, what my job is, what, have I, what do I do for a living. This is my story. And this kind of singles me out as the one and only Brett Martin that we're talking about. And so what we're doing here is we want to single out our God. There are many other gods in other religions around the world. You've got the, I mean, the, you've got Allah, and you've got Buddha, and Hindu, Hinduism, they have over a million gods. And then you have all the gods in Greek mythology and the Greek pantheon, and you've got all these gods all over the world. So what do we want to do is we want to single it down to our one true God. So we can call him God, but there are lots of gods. So we got to narrow it down a little bit. So then what we have to do is we have to start telling his story. Where does the story of our God start? Genesis 1.1. It says, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Now, uh, let me give you a little Hebrew here. That word God in that verse is the word Elohim. Now, Elohim is the Hebrew word for God, and it is a name for our God, but it's more a title. Elohim means creator God. Elohim means a being that can create the universe out of their being. So just out of his being, he can create the universe. And Elohim is more of a title than a name, and it means creator God. Now, we, especially here in the United States of America, we are very flippant about the name God. We're very flippant about this name. 
we use God's name in vain. It's almost burned in our vernacular and our vocabulary, and we do it without even thinking about it. When's the last time you texted OMG? You understand you're taking the Lord's name in vain when you do that. It's not just one little thing. And we have to train ourselves because this, it's, it slides in under the radar. We don't notice it. Oh, it's just real innocent. It's taking the Lord's name in vain. But the thing is, is not only are we very flippant about using the name God, but our society teaches us that when we're talking about God and the Muslims are talking about God, and the Hindus are talking about God, and the Christians are talking about God, that we're all talking about the same person. And that's what our society wants to ingrain in us. Oh, you're all worshiping all the same person. Sometimes I'd be watching a TV show, and I see a Muslim on the TV screen speaking Arabic, and I don't know any Arabic, but I hear them say the word Allah, and I know who Allah is, but in the bottom of the caption when they're transcribing the captions, translating it to English, when the person on the screen says Allah, it's translated in the bottom, God. Why? Because to our society today, they think we're all talking about the same person, and we are not. You go to Mecca. You go to Mecca and ask those Muslims in Mecca if the Christians worship the same God they do. And you know what those Muslims in Mecca will say? They will say no. They will say absolutely, positively not. They do not worship our God. So many cultures and so, so many religions have little g gods. They're everywhere. So when we, as Christians... When we say the word Elohim, when we say that our God is Elohim, our God is creator God, then we're narrowing the field a little bit. Because even though all these cultures and religions, they have many little g-gods, they're not all gods that can create the universe. They're just little, little, a little god over this, the god of the sea and the god of this over here and that over there. They're little g-gods that can't just create a whole universe, but our God can. So when we give our God the title of Elohim, creator God, we are narrowing the field. But guess what? This morning, we're going to narrow the field even further. We're going to narrow the field down to the undisputable Elohim. We will know his name. Did you know that God gave himself a name? God has a name. Just like James, just like John, just like Leroy. He has a name. A name that is used over 4,000 times in the Old Testament alone. He is the I Am. And his name is Yahweh. His name is Yahweh. Now, what exactly is the significance of this name? Well, let me tell you what it's not. Let me tell you what it's not. There's a mega church out there. I know you've heard of the church. It's called Elevation Church. 
is a megachurch. The lead teaching pastor of this church is a man named Stephen Furtrick. And Stephen Furtrick, he's, this is what he says about it. This is, and I quote, God said, I am to Moses. My name is I am. He was trying to get Moses to see you are as I am. And you know what that is? That out of context, new age, hippy-dippy nonsense. That's exactly, that's called self-worship. That's what that's called. That's called self-worship. That is not what God is trying to say to Moses. God does not need Moses to identify himself. If anything, God is saying, Moses, Moses, you need, you need to step back for a second. I'm about to tell you who I am, and I don't need you to do that. This isn't about identifying man. This is about identifying God. So let's get some backstory on Exodus 3. What exactly is going on here? As we know, Joseph is in the land of Israel. There's a famine in the land, and he brings his family over to Egypt, and the family Jews are moving over to Egypt, and the Hebrews are in Egypt, and they live for many generations and many years, and they grow, and they, they get bigger, and the population goes up, and then one day there arises a Pharaoh that knows not of Joseph. This Pharaoh doesn't know of Joseph. He sees that the Jews are getting, uh, getting bigger. They're outnumbering them. They're getting powerful. And so what they do is they put the Jews into slavery. They may make the Hebrews into slaves. Man, the taskmasters come after them, and they are, the people are oppressed in slavery. And they cry out to God, God, please deliver us from this. And God finally hears them because of their taskmasters and their sufferings. Well, then a little, ba- a little Jewish baby boy is born whose name is Moses. Now, Moses, it was very hard for him to even survive because Pharaoh had said, we're going to kill all the little male Jewish boys. We're going to kill all the Hebrew baby boys so they'll quit populating, so they'll quit growing as a nation. But God, through his sovereignty, saw fit to save Moses. He put, they put Moses in a little wicker basket, sent him down the river. Pharaoh's daughter found him, and he was raised by Pharaoh's daughter. He was raised in the court of Pharaoh. He was raised as a prince of Egypt. Understand that Moses got all the best education. He got all the best education that the world had to offer at that time. Part of that was writing and literature. And is it no surprise that this is the man God used to write the Ten Commandments? Well, he he wrote them the second time. If he hadn't got mad, he wouldn't have had to write them at all. But God used him to write and articulate the Ten Commandments for him, and the law, and the Torah. This is who God used. Now, so here Moses is. He's the prince of Egypt, and he decides he is going to stand up for his people. So he sees a Hebrew man being, being beat or being bullied by an Egyptian, and Moses steps in to defend his people and ends up killing the Egyptian. 
He hides him in the sand. Maybe nobody saw, oh, but people saw. And the people, Israel, rejected Moses. And Moses fled into the desert, and for 40 years, he wandered in the desert. You know, 40 years in the desert will have a way of humbling a man. So he's no longer the prince of Egypt. Now he's a shepherd. And now, 40 years later, he's on a mount called Mount Horeb. Mount Horeb has another name. Mount Sinai. It's the same mount. Mount Horeb and Mount Sinai are the same place. And so on Mount Horeb, he sees a bush. The angel of the Lord comes into the bush. The bush is on fire, but the bush is not burned. And a voice comes out of the bush and says, Take your shoes off, Moses. You're on holy ground. Let's go back to the Scripture and start reading in verse 6 of Exodus 3. And he said also, I am the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. Then Moses, Moses hid his face, for he was afraid to look at God. The Lord said, I have surely seen the affliction of my people who are in Egypt, and have given heed to their cry because of their taskmasters, for I am aware of their sufferings. So I have come down to deliver them from the power of the Egyptians, and to bring them up from the land to a good and spacious land, a land flowing with milk and honey, to the place of the Canaanite and the Hittite and the Amorite and the Perizzite and the Hivite and the Jebusite. Now behold, the cry of the sons of Israel has come to me. Furthermore, I have seen the oppression which the Egyptians are oppressing them. Therefore, come now and I will send you to Pharaoh so that you may bring my people, the sons of Israel, out of Egypt." So here, Moses, God chooses Moses as the leader. He, he is God's chosen leader. But right after this, Moses shrinks back a little bit. And in verse 11, he says, But Moses said to God, Who am I that I should go to Pharaoh and that I should bring the sons of Israel out of Egypt? And then God said in verse 12, Certainly I will be with you, and this shall be the sign to you that it is I who have sent you when you have brought the people out of Egypt. You shall worship God at this mountain. And then Moses brings us some of the most important things that God has ever said to human beings. And we're going to read our text verses one more time. Then Moses said to God, Behold, I am going to the sons of Israel, and I will say to them, The God of your fathers has sent me to you. Now they may say to me, What is his name? What shall I say to them? God said to Moses, I am who I am. And he said, Thus you shall say to the sons of Israel, I am has sent me to you. God furthermore said to Moses, Thus you shall say to the sons of Israel, The Lord, the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob, has sent me to you. This is my name forever. This is my memorial name to all generations. God says, You want to ask me what my name is? Well, here, I'm going to tell you 
what my name is. And God gives us three things about his name. Number one, my first point this morning is, I am who was. I am who was. And God said to Moses, I am who I am. This is, this is, uh, this is, he's not, he's not saying his name yet. He's saying his being. This is his being. I am who I am. Now, although Yahweh means I am, that's not what he's saying here. He's, he's actually, this statement, he's actually saying a name that only God can say. What he's saying is Ewa. Ewa. In fact, I am that I am is the phrase Ewa Asher Ewa. Okay? And what, and what that is, is that's a, a personal tense. He's saying, I am Ewa. You go tell them Yahweh. And it's the same thing, but Ewa is a personal tense. It's something that only God can say about himself. The phrase Ewa Asher Ewa actually translates, um, I will be what I will be. And most of your English translations translate it as I am who I am. And notice he didn't say this was his name. He says this is his being. Basically, God is saying, before I tell you my name, I need to tell you who I am. I need to tell you who my being is. Before I tell you my name, before you compare me to the gods of Babylon and compare me to the gods of Egypt and compare me to the gods of Philistia, you need to know I am who I am. And what that means is God absolutely is. I am absolute. I am unchanging. I am eternal. I am who I am. You see, Moses needed these credentials. He needed these credentials because he had to go before the sons of Israel. And he had to say, who, he, had, he needed these credentials because his credentials as a, as a prince of Egypt were gone. They were wiped out. The prince of Egypt was dead. And all that here was Moses. And, and needed, Moses needed something to show them. So when Moses asked this question, who shall I say sent me? Moses did not get the answer that he thought he was going to get. He did not get the answer he thought he was going to get. You see, up to this point in the Bible, every time God brings a new message, or every time God re-reveals himself to humans, he reveals a new name. He had done this all through the scripture up to this point. Every time God reveals a new message or God comes to a new person, God reveals a new name. Abraham in the encounter with Melchizedek, God revealed himself as El Elyon, God Most High. Abraham later encountered El Shaddai in Genesis 17:1, the Almighty God. Abraham will come to know God as El Olam and Jehovah Jireh, the everlasting God. The Lord will provide. Hagar encountered God and he was El Roy. Jacob meant El Elohi and El Bethel. So up to this point, when God reveals himself to man, he always revealed a new name, a new aspect of himself, a new message, a new name. But not this time. 
See, that's what Moses was expecting God to do. Okay, God, what's the, na- what's the new name going to be now? I'll, let me write it down. I'll add it to the list of names we have for you. What's the new name? God didn't give him a new name. Yahweh has always been there. In fact, in the book of Genesis, which is before Exodus, Yahweh's in there over 160 times. In fact, in your English translation, every time you see the word LORD in all caps, that is the name Yahweh. It's not a new name. It's not an unknown name. In fact, Moses knew the name very well. Moses' mother's name was Jochebed. That means Yahweh is my glory. The name of God is in Moses' mother's name. So this isn't a new name. This isn't an unknown name. It's something that we already know. You see, God didn't give Moses a new and improved name of God, but a name that they had known before. And what was he doing is God is calling Israel back to the faith of their fathers. To the God of old, he is not calling them to something new. I was raised in a very strict, staunch church background. Very strict, lots of rules. When I married my wife, she wore skirts until we came here. Very, very strict. And in the brand of Christianity that I was raised up in, we heard terms like, oh, the old-time religion and the old path. Let's go back to the old ways. And while those terms, they sound nostalgic and they sound sentimental and they can store up, store up emotions, it really it's a veiled throwback to man-made tradition. I really don't care about Grandpa's religion. I really don't. But guess what? I don't care about the new stuff either. I don't care about the new progressive Christianity. You hear the term progressive Christianity, you run from it. I don't care about that either. What I care about is this book and the God of this book. And that's what we need to get back to. We need to get back to the God of this book. You know what progressive Christianity teaches? Progressive Christianity teaches that back in the garden, when Adam and Eve was in the garden, God was the one who lied to Adam and Eve, and Satan was the one telling them the truth. They teach that Jesus did not die for your sin. That is not why Jesus died for your sin. Progressive Christians call themselves Christian agnostics because they claim they don't know everything so they call themselves Christian agnostics they don't believe in hell they believe in heaven-ish this is the voice of Satan without a doubt it is the voice of Satan so you've got that on one side and on the other side these are two ditches here on the other side you've got this brand of Christianity that they wear long sleeves and long pants and skirts down to the floor in 120 degree weather because following a set of rules is how you get close to God that's called legalism that is called legalism and I don't follow that anymore now that doesn't mean I'm going to come up here in my Bermuda shorts and my flip flops 
okay? You want to see some Shekinah glory, let me pull out these white legs for you, okay? That's not going to happen. But you know what? We need to get back to the God of this book. We need to get back to the God of the Bible. And that's what God is telling Israel through Moses. You don't need a new definition of God. You just need God. Number two. First, we had I am who was. Number two is I am who is. I am who is. Second part of verse 14. Thus you shall say to the sons of Israel, I am sent me to you. So first he told us about his being. Now this is a bridge to his name. Moses is given the power to use the name of God. The name of God used right will encourage Moses it will strengthen Israel's faith, and it will deliver Israel. Amen, sister. But you know what? The name of God used wrong has disastrous effects. And when people call up the name of God and preach heresy, it does way more harm than good. It is absolutely disastrous. But this name, yes, it's an old name, but it's new at the same time. This is new and old at the same time. Yes, it's connected to previous revelations, but now we have a fulfilled, a full interpretation. God, I am who I am. God is who he is. And what does that mean? That means God is absolute. God is supreme. God is final. God is best. He absolutely is. He is the number one fact. God is absolute. His being is absolute. And when you have an absolute being that has some facts, some things attached to that. So I've got some statements about God's absolute being. Number one, God's absolute being means that he never had a beginning. God never had a beginning. Every child has asked their parent, where did God come from? Who made God? And every parent has the same answer, no one made God. God didn't come from anywhere. God has always been. And eternity before the foundations of the world, God has always existed. Now, in my mind, okay, we are eternal beings. We're going to live forever somewhere, okay? I can kind of imagine that. But to imagine never having existed, to, I, mean, I mean, what I mean is to never have a beginning, to have always existed, an eternity before us, he existed. That's hard, that's impossible for my finite brain to grasp. Okay? Number two, God's absolute being means that God will never end. If he did not come into existence, he cannot go out of existence. If God did not come into being, he cannot go out of being. He always was and he always will be. Number three, 
God's absolute being means God's absolute reality. There is no reality before God. There is no reality outside of God. If there is an alternate universe out there, God was the one who created it. Okay? Before space, before the universe existed, there was no emptiness because there was God. And God is reality. Statement number four, God's absolute being means that he is utterly independent. He doesn't need you. He doesn't need me. He is utterly independent. He needs no help. He needs no support. And he does not need me and you to identify who he is. Number five, God's absolute being means that everything that's not God totally depends on God. You ever heard people say, oh, well, the universe didn't want me to have that today, or the universe just did this, or the universe just did that? Well, let me tell you something. The universe is secondary to God. The universe is being held together by God. It's secondary. Uh, Statement number six, God's absolute being means the universe, by comparison to God, is nothing. Anything compared to God is nothing. Isaiah 40, 17, all the nations are as nothing before him. They are counted by him as less than nothing and emptiness. I've got 10 of these. Number seven, God's absolute being means God is constant. Man, this is something the world needs today. God is constant. He is the same yesterday. He is the same today. He is the same forever. He cannot be improved. He is not becoming something. Progressive Christianity would have you believe that the God of the Old Testament was a bad God and Jesus is, he became Jesus and Jesus is a good God, but they take Jesus and pervert Jesus and make Jesus be whatever they want him to be. God is not becoming anything. You cannot perfect perfection. You can't get any better than that. Perfection cannot be improved. Statement number eight, God's absolute being means God is the absolute standard of truth, good, and beauty. He is the standard of right and true. Number nine, God's absolute being means God does whatever he wants and whatever God does is right. God can do whatever he pleases, and what God decides to do is right. I can kill somebody, and it's wrong. God can kill anybody he wants, and it's right. If I had a painting, and I painted on it, and it became worth a lot of money, and the McKenna come up and started painting over it, he'd go to jail because he devalued my valuable painting. That if I took that same painting that I painted, and I painted a happy little bush here, and I painted over it, and I painted a big red X, and I tore it up and I threw it in the trash, it's my painting, I can do with it whatever I want to. You're not going to tell me what I can do with my painting. I tell you. And that's the way God is. It's God's painting. Whatever God does is right. 
nothing can stop him from doing what he pleases and whatever he does is just. And then statement number 10, last statement. God's absolute being means that he is the most important, most valuable person and reality in the universe. So he gets the most attention, he gets the most admiration, and he is worthy of the most Nothing can be rightly known outside of God. And it is such an utter shame that God is, God is ignored, God is questioned, God is criticized, and God is treated in today's society by most people as virtually nothing. And there are people that give more attention to the carpet in their house than they do to God. They give more thought to the color of the carpet than they do to God Almighty. We exist to spread a passion about the supremacy of God. God is absolute, supreme, final, and whatever he does is right. And then number three, first we said, I am who was, I am who is, and then number three, I am who will be. Read verse number 15. God furthermore said to Moses, Thus you shall say to the sons of Israel, The Lord, the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob, has sent me to you. This is my name forever, and this will be my, be my memorial name to all generations. This is God telling his story. Remember how we said at the beginning, you give his name, but then to narrow it down, you give the story? Well, here in verse 15, he's given the story. God of Abraham, God of Isaac, God of Jacob, this is who I am. This is my story. This is so you know he's different than these other gods. But it says an interesting thing at the end of that verse. It says, this is my memorial name for all generations. You know why that's fascinating to me? It's fascinating to me because generations later, Jesus would call himself the I am. Jesus calls himself the I am. Jesus took that title upon himself. You know, I've heard it argued online that not one time did God ever say, that did Jesus ever say that he was God? Well, first off, that's not true. It may be true in the sense that Jesus never said those exact words, but there are several times that Jesus claimed to be deity. He claimed to be God. One of the most famous is in John 8:58. It says, "Most assuredly I say to you before Abraham was, I am." They knew exactly what Jesus meant when he said that. When he says, I am, he was calling himself Yahweh. Even though we speak in Greek, he was calling himself Yahweh. The Jews knew what it meant. That's why they picked up stones to stone him in the very next verse, because he claimed to be God. And what Jesus does is Jesus gives us a fuller meaning of I am who I am. Jesus 
He embellishes that for us. He, he expands our understanding of what that means. You understand that the New Testament is a magnifying glass for the Old Testament. And Jesus takes that name, and Jesus he says, I am the I am, and he expands what that means. You understand that Jesus, in the book of John, made seven I am statements. And what Jesus shows us is that, G that God becomes what we lack, and God becomes what we need. When we are in darkness, Jesus says, I am the light. When we are hungry, Jesus says, I am the bread of light, bread of life. When we are defenseless, he says, I am the good shepherd. When we are lost without hope, he says, I am the door. When we are on our deathbed, he says, I am the resurrection. I am the life. When you want to bear fruit, he says, I am the true vine. When, when, when your life is a lie, he says, I am the way. I am the truth. I am the life. If you need mercy, he becomes your mercy. If you need grace, he becomes your grace. If you need strength, he becomes your strength. If you need courage, he becomes your courage. God becomes what you need. He becomes what you lack. Turn to 1 Corinthians 8 for me. I want to show you this. 1 Corinthians 8. While you're turning the 1 Corinthians 8, I'm going to read for you Deuteronomy 6.4. I'm going to read it in English, and then I'm going to reread it inserting the Hebrew words. Deuteronomy 6.4 says, Hear, O Israel, the Lord is our God, the Lord is one. Okay? Now, I'm going to insert the Hebrew words for God into this verse. Hear, O Israel, the Yahweh is our Elohim. The Yahweh is one. Uh, you have to get this to understand what I'm going to show you in 1 Corinthians 8. Let me read it one more time. Hear, O Israel, the Yahweh is our Elohim, that title, Creator God. The Yahweh is one, one. Now, let's look in 1 Corinthians 8. Let's look at verse 5 and 6. For even if there are so-called gods, whether in heaven or in earth, as indeed there are many gods and many lords, Paul is saying exactly what we were saying at the beginning of the message. There are many gods out there, many little g gods, other religions, other cultures claim all these other gods. And so our society, when we say God, they think, oh, we're all, no matter where you're from, whatever religion, you're all talking about the same God. We'll look at the first part of verse 6. Yet for us there is but one. Christians can't agree to that. I can't agree that you serve a, a real God. I can't do that. Because Paul said, for us, there's only one God. It's the same reason why the early church Christians couldn't claim Caesar is God. Why couldn't they have just said, oh, well, yeah, yeah, Caesar's God. Uh, but let's come over here. They could have worshipped any God they wanted to worship. They could have worshipped this water bottle as their God. Rome had, did not care what they worshipped, but they had to claim that Caesar was God. 
And that's why they were persecuted, and that's why they were killed. Okay? So Paul is saying, for us, there's only one, one God. There's only one Elohim. So yet for us, there is only one God, the Father, from whom are all things, and we exist for him. That's the first line. But the second line says this, and one Lord, Jesus Christ, by whom are all things, and we exist through him. So this is Greek, but it's a throwback to the Hebrew. It's saying, there is one Elohim, the Father, and what's that word Lord in the Hebrew? Yahweh. And one Yahweh, Jesus Christ. But back here in Deuteronomy 6, it says that Elohim, Yahweh, is one. But over here it says the Father and Jesus they're one. This is the triune God. The Father, the Son, the Holy Spirit, three persons, one God. Even in Exodus 3, in verse 2, it says that the angel of the Lord was in the bush. And then in verse 4, it's Yahweh Elohim that's speaking. That, you know who was in the bush? Jesus was in the bush, the angel of the Lord, who is Yahweh Elohim. It's Jesus. This, this Moses from the burning bush, this is the Christophany. This is an Old Testament appearing of Jesus Christ. Hebrews 13, 8 says, Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. Jesus is God. As much as the Father is God. Three persons and one God. So what, what, why am I telling you this? I've given you the what, the why, the how, the when, but now I have to give you the so what. So what? Let me read for you Acts 17, 28. Listen to this. For in him we live and move and exist and as some of your own poets have said, for we also are his children. I want you to understand this morning that his existence came before mine and your existence. So everything flows from the Father. So when you put him first in your life, that flow flows through you. If God's not first in your life, if something else takes priority over God, your flow is off. And that's maybe that's why you're not growing as a Christian. God has to be first for the flow to be right. Listen to this. Don't just live for God. Live from God. Don't, don't just live for him. Live from him. God with this isn't saying, you are as I am. He's saying, I am what you need. When you put me as a priority in your life, above a job, above a relationship, above money, above everything else, above a pleasure, above a sin, when you put me first priority in your life, things begin to flow right for you. 
And may we never be guilty of blaspheming God by taking him for granted. How many Christians do you know they take God for granted? You know they're probably saved. You've seen some evidence of Christianity, but they're just backslidden. So they're taking God for granted. May, may we never be guilty of doing I am who I am, and God absolutely is. He is absolute. He is supreme. He is final. He is best. He is the I am. And it's time we put God back on top. 